않아서 So happy Bodhicitta Day October 1st it's, uh, For me it's a very memorable date of the year um, October 1st 65 years ago the communists took over China and swiftly commenced to destroying Dharma all over Tibet, destroyed almost all the 6,000 monasteries. And then when the Cultural Revolution really kicked in, then they just destroyed all of their own religion too, all of Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism. So big disturbance, much suffering. But of course, one of the side effects of that is that um, Tibetan Buddhism became global. So I was one of the first recipients of that. So in a way, in a very specific way, I feel grateful for Mao Zedong liberating His Holiness from Tibet so I could meet him. It was also, uh, now what is it, 43 years ago, October 1st, that I began receiving my training in Dharamsala. The Tibetan Library of Tibetan Works and Archives opened. And so then I really started receiving formal training. And then it was October 1st, 1976, 38 years ago, that with the direct admonition of Geshe Dapten, I began teaching Dharma. A little group of Swiss hippies up in the, up in the Swiss Alps. So it's kind of a memorable day for me. It's a good day to teach Bodhicitta. I remember when, so vividly I remember, during 1972, mostly 1972, I guess, uh, with His Holiness's encouragement and Geshe Raplin's permission, then I would hike up to his cabin whenever he had some free time, and I received his life story. I would pose questions to him from his childhood on all through his training. And my primary interest, because I asked this, was back, this is a long time ago, this is 70, 72 or so. Um, there was this word geshe, geshe, and none of us really knew what it meant, you know, back then. And so I was very curious. I knew it was the title, like PhD, that you would get after quite a significant amount of training. But none of us knew what that training was. Uh, and here was this geshe Raptan, who was both a consummate scholar, first-rate geshe, but was also the yogi up on top of the hill, or up on the hillside. Uh, I said, well, that's, I'd really like to know his story. And so he agreed to tell me his story. And so that took place over a matter of months. I would hike up the hill, sit with him, uh, and he told me his story. And when we came towards the end of the story, of his life story thus far, then he said, well, looking back on a life, an adult life from the age of 19. So that was very encouraging for me. His formal studies began when he was 19. Mine began when we were 20. So I felt, okay, not too late. <laughs> not too late for me, you know. Um, but now he's you know, a consummate scholar, first-rate geshe, uh, a doctrinal advisor for his Holland Dalai Lama, a yogi living up in a hut. So one could say the perfect life. You know? And so after telling me his whole life story and the years, 24 years of just awe-inspiring dedication to study and practice, study and practice uh, in one of the great monastic universities of Tibet, in Seda, uh, 
Then looking back, he said, all right, here's what I've concluded based upon these years and years of study and practice. And that is, it appears to me that all of Dharma consists of one of three things. All of Dharma is either a preparation for bodhicitta, it is bodhicitta, or it flows out of bodhicitta. And there's nothing in Dharma outside of that. And then he added with a chuckle, because he was a, a great debater. He was really an outstanding debater. He said, if anybody, any of you would like to disagree, because he knew I'd be writing this up, he said, anybody would like to disagree, I'm happy to debate with you. you know? He said with a chuckle. I know he would win the debate. So from the Mayana perspective, this is evidently true. Even if one is following what is sometimes called a lower vehicle, or the Shravakayana, which is not pejorative, simply the, the vehicle, spiritual vehicle for your own liberation. There's nothing pejorative about that. But even if one is following that, and you come to the culmination of that path, you become a Shravaka Arhat, and the continuum before five skandhas is terminated, and you slip into this immutable bliss of nirvana, beyond time, beyond space, and beyond samsara. From the Mahayana perspective, you're still not finished. Right? And it, it occurred to me this morning a little bit humorously that it's the only case that I know of that one can say ignorance is bliss. Because you're, while you're gaining, you have gained. You're, you're immersed non-dually, non-conceptually, in this unmediated realization of ultimate reality, of nirvana. That's certainly knowledge. You know reality as it is. That other aspect of Buddha nature, and that is the primordial consciousness of the full range of phenomena, you don't have it. In fact, you have none of it. You don't, you don't, you're not even aware of a flyspeck, or an atom, or a flea. Nothing. You're completely oblivious of all of samsara, all of the phenomenal world. No contact, you know. You are ignoring, deliberately, by your agenda following that path, ignoring the whole phenomenal world, all of space and time and all sentient beings within it, and you are experiencing immutable bliss, and you're knowing one aspect of reality, but you're ignoring another. Now, how can that be complete? How can that be a final destination? And from the Mahayana perspective, well, it's not. And that means sooner or later, the Buddha mind has to catalyze you, trigger you, and get, get going again. Finish the unfinished work. You know, follow that Bodhisattva path so that you fully realize your Buddha nature. You've realized half, so to speak, but not that aspect, not the bodhicitta, not realizing conventional reality, relative truth, not realizing, manifesting. That's primordial consciousness that knows the full range of phenomena, not manifesting the extraordinary range of creative power, ability, creativity of Buddha mind. Not realize that either. Because you're in this timeless, inactive mode beyond space and time. So even that would be preparation. Now one of the things that major reason that I left Western civilization when I was 20, and then 21, then really left, was just the sense of the total, profoundly unsatisfying, fragmentary nature of the education that I received all the way through college. It was just like 
It was a wall, and people were throwing mud at the wall. Here's some German literature. Here's some chemistry. Here's some math. How about some art? You want some history? You want some music? How about some religion? And how about some biology and chemistry and physics? And how about some mathematics? And it was kind of like just getting splattered with information and no coherence. Nothing fit together. Nothing was coherent. Nothing had any overall meaning or orientation. It was just like information glut. Uh, and I just ended it wasn't integrated. Meaning and truth were not integrated. Lots of meaning from the Christian side, but I couldn't see the truth of some of their assertions. And then lots of truth in science, and I couldn't find any meaning anywhere. It was just lots of data. So it was really, with dismay, a profound disillusionment with all of the education I'd received up to the age of 20, that I just said, enough, enough. But then, to my great delight, I found that there was another way of education, another approach to education, that His Holiness Dalai Lama really enormously emphasizes, praises, reveres, promotes. It's called the Nalanda tradition, the Nalanda tradition, you know, tracing back to the great monastic university of Nalanda and other comparable universities like Vikramashila and others, but primarily Nalanda Vikramashila. And so long ago, I can't even remember who first taught, taught me, maybe Gesharapan, I can't remember, it was so long ago. But learning about the, uh, the mandala of knowledge in this educational tradition, I was really quite enamored. And, and it struck me of something, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but it struck me of one book that I really found inspiring when I was reading in Germany, because I was reading voraciously there, studying Tibetan, dropped all my classes and just read a lot. Uh, but the one book that really inspired me was a book by Hermann Hesse called Das Glasperlenspiel. Das Glasperlenspiel. The Magus du Ludi, or The Glass Bead Game. And fiction, of course. And I loved Hermann Hesse. I read pretty much all of his works. But this is, I think he actually got a, a, a big prize, Pulitzer Pula, Pula Prize or something like that for this one book. It was quite noted at the time. It was a long time ago. But uh, it was visionary. And it was kind of a vision of knowledge all interweaving, that every part, like a holographic image, that every part would connect with every other part. And the glass bead game would be playing with this whole inter interrelated field of knowledge. Um, so, but that was just the opposite of the old education I'd received. And so when I learned about the Nalanda tradition and the matrix of knowledge that was presented there, it was profoundly inspiring. It reminded me of this, this glass perlenspiel. And the, the center, there actually was a center to the education. There is no center. If you go to a Christian college, you may, may very well find it. It may be real, a real core of Christian doctrine. I admire that. Or if you go to a Jewish college or Jewish university or you know, school, you may very well find it, something really in the core. That I think is wonderful. But the secular education I receive, there's no core. Any, any more than like Los Angeles, there's no core. It's just spread out all over the place. You know? And so... But there's a core in the Nalanda tradition, and the core identifies itself as such because it's called the inner science. The inner science. And that's the science of the mind. It's the science of knowing the reality of suffering and the causes of suffering, the possibility of liberation and the path to liberation. It's knowing how the mind operates. It's knowing the multiple dimensions of the mind, the coarse mind, subtle mind, very subtle mind. It's understanding the role of mind in nature. It's seeking to understand the whole of the universe, universe from the inside out, and that universe is the universe of experience, and not some universe existing independently of experience. So 
I thought, well, you got that one right. That's an orientation I can relate to. And that's where I want to go. I want to go right to the center. That's all I care about. I just want to go to the center. That was my predilection. That's one of five. But what I found just so, so rich about this model that I'm unpacking right now is there's the center. And it, of course, it's dharma. It's dharma. It's all about eudaimonic well-being, sublime happiness that we encountered earlier in the great mudita, empathetic joy, sublime well-being, sublime happiness, freedom and awakening. That's the center. That's what it's all about. But now, not everybody is ready to gravitate there today. So there are then multiple doors, multiple doors, and there are four doors leading to the center. And one of these in Tibetan is called Solarikpa. And Solarikpa is the science of healing. The science of healing. So physiotherapy, being a doctor, being a nurse, being an acupuncturist, being an herbalist, being a nutritionist, being a massage therapist, and so forth. Uh, being a psychologist, a psychiatrist, and so forth. So there's a whole range of professions. In traditional India, traditional Tibet, this would have been primarily Indian Ayurvedic medicine or eventually traditional Tibetan medicine. But it's really all about healing. Healing human beings, healing animals, healing sentient beings. But it's healing. Right? Chiropractic, all of that. Healing. So for some people, when they hear about the very array of occupations, vocations that they might devote themselves to, and they may hear about art, music, and science, and literature, and dharma, and so forth, and then they hear about healing, and their ears tingle. Oh, you just, you just rang my note. You just rang my bell. You know, that, that's the one that stirs my heart. That's the one. That's the one. So that's good. Because if there are no healers in the world, There'd be one heck of a lot of sick yogis and sick everybody else. So it's really good that there's a door like that. But now it's not in, in this Nalanda tradition. It doesn't just stop there with, okay, now you're a wonderful chiropractor, you know, herbal he healer or medical doctor or what have you. But then you say, but my, my aspiration was to heal. And that's fine. So somebody comes to you with a bro broken leg. Well, I would go to a modern Western trained doctor for that one. Uh, but let's imagine you heal the broken leg. You, you, you set it you, exactly right. You put it in the cast. You do everything right. And then after some time, the person says, well, my leg is completely cured. The, bows, the bone's fused. It's good as ever. But then the doctor might ask, but that was just a leg. I'd really like to heal you. And so how can we improve your physical health, but then more deeply? Because after all, don't we all care more about our mental well-being than our physical well-being? We've been through that one before, right? And so I'd really love to heal you. Is, is there any unrest, any sense of ill at ease, any anxiety, depression, sadness, afflictions, disruptions of the mind that you're still suffering from? And then thinking, that's real healing. The outer is very important. You break a leg, you want to feel it, fix it, you know. But if you're going to be healing, let's, let's get real here. People care more about their inner well-being than they do their outer, even athletes. They don't want to be healthy and miserable at the same time. They'd rather be, you know, happy and not win the race. Even athletes, right? And so the healer then, just following the, 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 the arrow of the heart, says, yes, I want to heal the outer layers, but let's keep on healing. Let's not stop. And you see then, if you're really seeing with clear vision, the underlying causes actually even a physical, but certainly more explicitly the mental, are the afflictions of the mind. So in, in traditional Tibetan medicine, the body gets into a state of imbalance because, imbalance, disease, 
because of imbalances of wind, bile, and phlegm. Well, those are related to imbalances of craving, hostility, and delusion. Traces back to the mind. So if you want to really get to the source of even physical problems, let alone mental, then you have to go and heal people of their mental afflictions and oscurations. But in order to do that, of course, it would be a really good idea to do it yourself first, in which case, in order to be a really good healer, better become a Buddha first. And then you'll be the great healer, the supreme healer, the great physician. Right? So there's one avenue, in through the door of healing. There's another one, Densi Krikpa. And this is the science of reasoning, of logic. So, epistemology, logic, the whole art of debate, and more broadly speaking, this would definitely include mathematics. It's a type of reasoning, type of quantitative reasoning. This will take you right into philosophy, right, right into epistemology, Dhammakirti, Dignaga, right into Nagarjuna, Chantakirti, Shantideva, Tsongaba, Lama, Mipamarmaja, and so on. Sheer power of reasoning, the intelligence, and using that full throttle. From my experience, I don't know anybody who does that with such depth and clarity as a soul in it. I don't know anybody, I think, that I know that trusts intelligence that much to follow it all the way through to its end. I mean, boy, when he talks logic, when he talks Madhyamaka, you see, this man really believes in intelligence. He really believes in reason. I think a lot of modern people don't. Frankly, they don't really believe it. You know, that's just words. Just, it's just logic. It's just philosophy. Boy, when he does philosophy, like it's a matter of life and death. This is philosophy. This is philosophia. This is the love of wisdom. Many of my teachers have that, but boy, he shines, his holiness. When he teaches Madhyamaka, I heard him teach all four schools in one, one current. You had to have a seatbelt. I mean, you think I'm a fire hydrant. Listen to him when he's on. Oh. So follow your logic, follow your math, follow your reasoning, penetrate, investigate. Phenomenological analysis, philosophical analysis, ontological analysis, probe right through, and you're going to come to nirvana. If you're, if you're smart enough, if you penetrate deeply enough, whether it's by way of quantum cosmology or quantum physics or Hilary Putnam or William James or Nagarjuna or Shankara for that matter, if you keep on penetrating all the way through, your intelligence is going to lead you to, to nirvana. And that's the full use of your intelligence. It's called the perfection of wisdom. Because the word for intelligence and wisdom are the same. Prajna. So that's the door for those who would love to use their minds and will do so fearlessly with an open mind and sheer tenacity to never be satisfied for anything less than the culmination of the inquiry. Then there's Zohar Zohar is the, the science of creation, of creating things. It includes technology, all of technology, implicitly. All of technology, laser technology, cell phones, rockets, everything, making stuff. But of course, in the same bundle, the same door, is arts. Statues, tankas, sand mandalas, making tormas, and so forth. Making bridges. One of the greatest lamas in Tibet was a big bridge builder. Chaksamba. Chaksamba. You know, built iron bridges all over Tibet. He was a great lama, but that was his big contribution because 
you know, better have a bridge than have to travel 10 miles up and 10 miles down. Because, you know, it saves people some time. And so that too, that's a door. Some people are engineering technology, symbol engineering, all kinds of engineering. That's all Zoharikpa. Arts, all of the arts. All of the arts. That's there. And then and all of that is for the sake of service, right? Your, your religious art, your technology, all of that is for the sake of service to sentient beings. And then you just think, all right, what's the greatest thing I could create? What would be the, my, my creation, my, my masterpiece? What's the greatest thing I could possibly create in the service of humanity? And then I remember that just right come, comes to mind. The Buddha just answered the question. Uh, as the Fletcher shapes the arrow and the potter shapes the pot, so does the wise man shape his own mind. You are your own creation. Right? There wasn't anybody else who did this to you. If you don't like your body, don't blame anybody else. You know? This comes from your karma. Right? Each of us. Dani Dagi Gun, as Holiness said, in that powerful drama discourse he gave in 1979 in Switzerland, for which I was serving as an interpreter. I remember that phrase, Dani Dagi Gun, you are your own master. Dani Dagi Gun, you are your own master. One Tibetan aphorism. I'm running on again. I think we're going to be late. He said, one Tibetan aphorism. If you want to know your past karma, Look at your body. If you want to know your future, look at your mind. Because your mind is the creator. With your mind above all. That's where your intention lies, right? That's where your motivation lies. That's the root of your karma. So if you want to see what kind of form you're going to have in the future, look at your mind. Then you can be a prophet. And you can figure it out. That's the kind of body I'm fashioning for the future. Well, then we're all artists, aren't we? We're all creators. We're all creators. We're all creating one form after another. So what kind of form would you like to create? What kind of body, speech, and mind would you like to create? Create that of a sentient being? You'll be one of many. Or you can create the body, speech, and mind of a Buddha. And then you actually might do some great good. So if you're a creator, if you're an engineer, if you're an artist, then let your body, mind, body, speech, and mind be that which you fashion and create something beautiful. Become a Buddha. And then there's Narikpa. That's an interesting one. Shabdavidya. Knowledge of sound. Knowledge of sound. It's actually very mysterious. On the surface it's not. It's referring to Sanskrit grammar. But Sanskrit grammar is really regarded by both Hindus and Buddhists as being an exceptional language, quite possibly unique language. The language of the gods, the language of nature. Sanskrit, the, the Hindus and the Buddhists regard really Sanskrit as being comparable, having a comparable role for Dharma as natural scientists the world over regard mathematics. Mathematics is the language of nature. They all say that. Before they used to say Galileo, say that's the language of God. That's the, when God said, let there be light, he said it with Maxwell's equations. You know, Maxwell's equations eventually came out. But God speaks with the language of mathematics in Christianity. Uh, 
And now in a more secularized physics, I hear this resounding. It's like a lion's roar. Nature, I remember one no, uh, man who accepted an invitation that I, I offered for him to speak at a conference I organized at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. He eventually, not long after, earned a Nobel Prize in physics. Named David Gross. He gave a long lecture because I, I organized a whole conference on nothing. So we had a lot of people coming. Because people like to know about nothing. And so he gave a talk about the nature of the vacuum and nothing in modern physics. But I remember one thing especially. He spoke, he spoke really like a prophet. There's no sarcasm here at all. I'm, I'm sarcastic once in a while, not now. He said, nature speaks in one language only, and that is the language of mathematics. And for the Hindus and Buddhists, coming out of the Indic tradition, nature speaks in the language of Sanskrit, with the Sanskrit syllables. Out of emptiness arises the seed syllable, right? The Sanskrit syllables. And out of these appear earth, water, fire, air, the whole of reality arising out of sound, seed syllables, right? The deities arising out of seed syllables, mandalas out of seed syllables, the mantras of seed syllables, the use of mantra, remember? Samadhi, mantra, and physical substance to actually perform cities. But this mantra is there. Some power in that. Some power in the sound, in that vibration. So the power of sound, the science of sound, that would include music as well include voice, power of voice. It's said for a person who has immersed him or herself in truth speaking is extremely assiduous about not deceiving, you know, for maybe many lifetimes, makes a big habit of truth speaking. Then you achieve kind of a city, it's called densik, densik, words of truth. Whatever comes out of your mouth is, winds up being true. Just spontaneously. Just, you say something and they wind up being true. I would like that. To be a non-deceiver. There's enough deceit in the world already. No need for any additions for me. So the power of sound, the, power, the science of sound. Among the Buddha's body, speech, and mind, the one that delivers the good is speech. Among the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, the primary refuge is Dharma, conveyed by sound, conveyed by speech. Not the miracles, not the inaccessible, unabashable mind of the Buddha, but the speech, sound. <coughs> so if you'd like to fathom the nature of sound, fathom the great drum of Dharma, the lion roar of Dharma, Fathom Dharma. One who sees the Dharma sees the Buddha. So know the Buddha by way of sound. So now what's the last one? I always forget one of them. Healing, creation, logic, sound, and... Come on. Oh, we've already got it. Inner. <laughs> I covered that one first, and I've covered all five. Right? So these other four, they're all leading to the center. They all take you to the center. But some people are more drawn to music. Some people are more drawn 
to healing. Some people are more drawn to the power of the mind, intelligence, so forth. They fall, fall into the center. But then, the center from the center, everything flows out. So from bodhicitta, then outflows art, and outflows philosophy, and outflows mathematics, and science, and creativity, and engineering, and everything else. Uh, it is said that, I think in Shantideva, there is no activity that a bodhisattva, no benevolent, no meaningful activity, that a bodhisattva will find uh, that will refuse because it's too low, like being a janitor or a cook or a groundskeeper. There's no activity that will be beneath the, the bodhisattva. The bodhisattva will master all types of activity, all types of occupations, because each one, plumbing, accounting, farming, agriculture, space aeronautics, whatever, anyone can be an avenue for the bodhisattva's blessings to flow. And extending that out a bit further, something I really rejoiced in when I, as I was first learning about Mahayana Dhamma, is that it said that, of course, the bodhisattvas will not always manifest as Buddhists, let alone as Mahayana Buddhists. They may manifest as Muslims, as Christians, as Taoists, as agnostics. Who knows? Maybe as materialists, as scientists, mathematicians. Manifest in all different ways. You know. They're just coming wherever they can be of service. And so... Any one of these great spiritual traditions may also be leading to bodhicitta. Science may lead you to bodhicitta. Mathematics, and so on. And then once you come to bodhicitta, then everything flows out of bodhicitta and leads you to perfect awakening. So just a couple of verses from Shantideva. Who better to cite? After the Buddha, who better than Shantideva? So, just a few verses from Shantideva. First chapter. I memorized it a long time ago, the whole chapter, just because it was so inspiring. But there's a lot of, in Vajrayana Buddhism, if you go to some Tibetan Lama, there's empowerments and so forth and so on. Many Tibetan Lamas, especially Gagyu, Nyingma, but really all Tibetan traditions, many of them will very quickly encourage you, oh, if you're really serious, we'll go then do the preliminary practices. Because this purifies obscurations, it accrues merit. And so they may have you even, you hardly have any understanding. They may say, well, start doing the preliminaries, you know, where start doing a mandala, prostration, and so forth. Do the preliminary. Then we'll teach you the main practices. But do the preliminaries first. Um, it's good if you have faith, devotion, very single-pointed attention. Marvelous. I have nothing more to say. Great. Bodhicitta is one of the preliminary practices for Vajrayana. And in terms of purification, for the cultivation of bodhicitta, you don't necessarily have to, have to recite 100,000 of anything. How about just cultivate bodhicitta, you know, with no external ritual or format. And so here's what Chandadeva says, like the conflagration at the time of the destruction of the universe, it, bodhicitta, consumes great vices in an instant. So without elaborating much on, on Buddhist cosmology, but it's to take just a metaphor, an analogy in, in let's say, modern astronomy or uh, astrophysics. You have a star that's born, and like our star right now. And then after some time, the star may go supernova. And then it just incinerates all the planets around it, right? And they're just all vanished, just burnt to a crisp, even, not even a crisp. There's nothing left. 
And so that would be a great conflagration, like a supernova that just completely envelops, consumes everything on the earth, and it's just gone. Okay? So that's comparable to this notion in Buddhist cosmology of a great fire that simply incinerates inhabited worlds, loka, loka. And so, and so he's saying here that bodhicitta, when you cultivate and you really truly realize bodhicitta, then whatever evils, vices, negative deeds you may have performed in this or any previous lifetime, the impact of cultivating bodhicitta on purifying, burning, torching, extinguishing those negative karmic imprints is like this conflagration at the end of an eon. I mean, it just incinerates uh, any kind of obscurations or negative imprints you haven't had from the past. So if you'd like to purify your mind, there's no reason to look outside of that. That will, that will do it. And then he, he elaborates just a bit. This will not take long, but we will be going on a bit longer today. He said, now, in brief, bodhicitta is known to be of two kinds. Aspiring bodhicitta and engaged bodhicitta. These two. This is very familiar to many of you, but maybe not every single person here. And it's definitely worth a little review. So he continues, just as one perceives the difference between a person who yearns to travel and a traveler, so do the learned recognize the corresponding difference between those two, aspiring bodhicitta and engaged bodhicitta. So the aspiring bodhicitta, it's pretty much self-explanatory then. It's not just one day thinking, oh, I'd really like to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. Anybody can do that. Like, right, that's nice. It's a nice thought. But it's not an unhinged, decontextualized little aspiration. Gosh, that would be really nice. I think I would like to become a Buddha for the sake of all sentient beings. That's a nice thought. But if that's going to be bodhicitta, that's going to have the groundswell of the four immeasurables behind it, this massive 50-foot wave. And then it's going to have the groundswell of the four greats, great compassion and so forth. Now you have a 100-foot wave, and that's going to be leading to this extraordinary resolve. And that, finally, is the answer to the question that's implicit in the extraordinary resolve. When you arouse this pledge, I shall liberate all sentient beings from all suffering and the causes of suffering and bring each one to perfect enlightenment, then in the back of your mind, there's got to be a question mark. And, uh, and it gets, how am I going to go, go, go about doing that? You know, that's a very good pledge. I mean, that's an incredible pledge, an extraordinary resolve. But like, what's your strategy? What's your game plan? And well, there's only one game plan. For that to be realistic, you've got to achieve Buddhahood yourself. And then it's bodhicitta. Ah, now I get it. Then in order to realize that aspiration, to fulfill that aspiration, in order to do so, then of course, as an afterthought almost, Oh, then I, have, then, well, then I have to achieve enlightenment. Because otherwise I couldn't do that, and that's what it's all about. I've got countless sentient beings on the one hand, me on the other. And so I'm not thinking now, I want to do this, and what benefit can I do for other people? I'm thinking, there's the whole world of sentient beings. They need liberating, and therefore, ah, there's only one person I can really kind of control in a manner of speaking. One person I can really say, okay, you do it, and that's me. So hello, you achieve enlightenment. You've got a lot of work to do. And then that's where bodhicitta comes from. And so that aspiration, that resolve, when that comes spontaneously, effortlessly, when it becomes kind of like your just natural upswelling of your prime directive, your desire of desires, your heart's desire becomes manifest. In that moment, when this aspirational bodhicitta arises, then you're a bodhisattva. 
Now you're a bodhisattva. Now you've entered that small stage of the Mahayana path of accumulation. It's a resolve, but it's kind of like you've turned on the engine. The engine is on. It's running. It's purring. But you haven't put it into gear yet. And that's what the engaged Buddhism is. The engaged bodhicitta is. Engaged bodhicitta. Where with aspiration, you're now actually doing something about it. Whether it's just avoiding the ten non-virtues, whether it's taking your kids to school for the sake of all sentient beings, whether it's whatever it may be, when that resolve, that motivation, is actually that which is inspiring, motivating, moving you to move about the world and do things, meditate, serve sentient beings, prepare a tzok offering, or what have you, when the motivation is bodhicitta, then that is now engaged bodhicitta. And that includes taking kids to, go, to the school, going to work as an accountant, as a, as a gardener, a plumber, a teacher, a sales clerk. You can do all of those with bodhicitta. You can also become a monk or nun. You can also go into a 40-year retreat. You know, bodhicitta is the one common denominator. And so when it's engaged, well, then that's the second type of bodhicitta. And here's what Shantideva says about the distinction between the two. He says, although the result of aspiring bodhicitta is great within samsara, okay, within this context, it is still not like the continual state of merit of engaged bodhicitta. He'll elaborate on that. From the time that one adopts bodhicitta with an irreversible attitude for the sake of liberating limitless sentient beings, from that moment on, an uninterrupted stream of merit equal to the sky constantly arises even when one is asleep or distracted. Asleep or distracted. So that should give comfort to all of you who are still experiencing distraction while you're meditating. (laughs) That if you've developed bodhicitta, and you're meditating rather poorly, but with the motivation of bodhicitta, then even when your mind's distracted, you're still accumulating merit, let alone when you're really in deep in samadhi. Right? Now, I've heard it said also that, you know, if you've put in a long day of practice, let's say you're back in the socially engaged way of life, maybe you have children, family, work, obligations, social engagements, and so forth, and at the end of the day, you're really kind of tired, just kind of tuckered out, and you feel, you know, I'd like a bit of refreshment. Maybe there's something on television that is meaningful, entertaining, but, you know, that's just that, meaningful, entertaining. There are such things. You have to look for them, but you can't find them. Then you might say, oh, there's a good program. That's, that one, yeah, that's, i really like to see that. I've, I've been interested in that topic. And then you may say, and watch television. And watching television, your stream of merit just continues to flow right on, right on through the television program. Because your motiva- motiva- motivation. It's all motivation. Now, you wouldn't be watching something, it just arouses mental afflictions, or it's a complete waste of time, because that's not going to help anybody. But there's meaningful entertainment, right? Just resting, going for a walk, having a friendly conversation with a friend. So all of this transforms into merit. It's just this continuous flow of merit if your life now is fused with this engaged bodhicitta. And if you don't have that, you could be sitting and going into a 10-year Dzogchen retreat, resting awareness in its own nature. Whether it's virtuous or not, it's an open question. Whether it's Dzogchen is highly dubitable, really dubitable, that is questionable. Like with no, let's see, Dzogchen without bodhicitta. That's like a car with no wheels. That's like a flame with no heat. That's not possible. 
Dzogchen is ultimate bodhicitta. You can't have ultimate bodhicitta without relative bodhicitta. So that's a little introduction to bodhicitta. Beginning, the middle, and end of Dharma practice. Absolutely central. And when I first heard about it, I was intimidated. I thought, oh, that's, for, that's for bodhisattvas, that's for people way beyond me. I'm just a guy from California, just a young Dharma student, just trying to get a little bit less confused. I think I have to wait on that one. That's, that's kind of too big for me. And Geshe Ngantaige, he hammered me in a very benevolent way. He said, it's never too soon, never too soon to develop bodhicitta. Never think that's beyond you. Start now. If you've not started already, start now. It's not above you. And he said, I can't quote him, but I know the meaning. He said, okay, you're pretty young. Now, if you devote your life to dharma, and you don't realize bodhicitta in this lifetime, then you've wasted your life. Let's have our supplications, the four empowerments, and we'll continue meditating. Guru Pema Siddhi Hum Hum Oike Yuki Nupchan Sam Pema Gesa Dombola Yamsen Shoki Mudubnye Pema June Chesuta Kodu Kando Mambuko Keki Jesu Datuki Jinge Lapchi Shaksusu Guru Pema Siddhi Hum Hum Oike Yuki Nupchansam Pema Gesa Dombola Yamsen Shoki Mudurnye Pema June Shisuta Kodu Kando Mambuko Eki Jesu Datuki Jinge Lapshi Shaksus Guru Pema Siddhi
Omahum Bebeguru Pemesirium like to switch postures, please do so now. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. For the next several minutes, make your mind serviceable. Soothe and calm your body and mind. By way of mindfulness of breathing, following the method of your choice. More and more deeply settling your respiration in its natural rhythm.
And then with your eyes open, your gaze vacantly resting in space, withdraw your awareness from the breath, from all objects and appearances. Let your awareness rest in its own place, holding its own ground. Resting in your awareness of your ordinary consciousness of the present moment. Ever so simple. And although you may very well not be realizing or identifying pristine awareness, this present ordinary consciousness, you may say, is the portal to primordial consciousness. Look nowhere outside of this ordinary consciousness of the present moment. It is here that Rikpa manifests. It is through this consciousness that the blessings of Rikpa flow. Rest here in a state of inactivity, non-conceptuality, clear and luminous cognizance, and simply be present. This is the avenue by way of which ultimate bodhicitta manifests.
now out of this center. The center which is the wellspring of ultimate bodhicitta. Then cultivate relative bodhicitta. Lead up to this great aspiration. Arouse it, cultivate it, and sustain it. In whatever way you find most effective. so that your mind becomes bodhicitta. And we'll continue practicing now in silence.
on also. So the interviews will be 20 minutes late this morning. See you a bit later. Enjoy your day.